0: Today on Ring of Truth with Pastor Dan Sexton.
1: We should always seek first the kingdom of God. It is always a bad idea. To make a decision for your life solely on what will prosper my career or that I'll make more money if I take this job or this is a big promotion. And to make the decision solely on economics, solely on how it's going to impact your bank account or your career and give no consideration to how it will impact your relationship with God or how it will impact your family spiritually. Always a bad idea.
0: In Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In today's message with Pastor Dan, he'll remind you of the importance of seeking God's will before you make a big decision in your life. You may think decisions like moving to a different town, switching jobs, or changing your marital status and your decisions to make but they will spiritually impact your life. So seek God and ask Him to show you His plans before you make your own. Now here's Pastor Dan in the book of Jeremiah chapter 49 for today's edition of Ring of Truth.
1: Isaiah 34, so this is after his second coming. After he comes again, he will judge the nations. He will gather the nations, and he will separate the sheep from the goats. He will judge the nations. And it says here in Isaiah 34, verse 5, For my sword, this is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, For my sword shall be bathed in heaven, indeed it shall come down on Edom. And on the people of my curse for judgment, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. That's down in Edom. And a great slaughter in the land of Edom. The wild oxen shall come down with them as the young bulls from the mighty bulls their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust saturated with fatness. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its stream shall be turned into pitch, and its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste No one shall pass through it forever and ever, but the pelican and the porcupine shall possess it. Also the owl and the raven shall dwell in it, and he shall stretch out over it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. Again, here it's it's describing the judgment of Edom that will take place after Christ's return, and the land will be made desolate. It will be made a wasteland where just you know, animals dwell, that kind of thing. I say all that looking at all these verses to say that God's not done with Ammon and Moab and Edom. They play a significant role in the end times. They're going to play a significant role during the tribulation period. They're going to play a significant role when Christ returns. He's going to come up out of Edom, out of Basra, to Jerusalem. And then they're going to be judged during the judgment that will follow. So, let's go back to chapter 49. We'll get into the chapter now. Look at verse 1. Against the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, Has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then does Milcom inherit Gad and his people dwell in its cities. If you remember from the book of Numbers, the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh chose to settle on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They chose not to enter into the promised land, into the land that God had for them there. They chose to settle east of the Jordan River and stay there, and we're told in Numbers that they chose to settle east of the Jordan River because it was a good land for cattle. And they had cattle. And so they got to that area and they said, hey, this is is a pretty place right here. We just want to stay here. We don't want to cross over the Jordan River. We don't want to enter into the promised land. We don't want to have to deal with the nations that are over there and the walled cities and the giants and the battles that there are to fight there. We just want to stay here. It's a good place for cattle. We raise cattle. This will be good for us. In other words, they made that decision to settle based solely on economics. Because it, it would be easier for them and it would prosper them economically. They raised cattle and it was a good place for cattle. The Bible says we should always seek first the kingdom of God. It is always A bad idea. To make a decision for your life solely on what will prosper my career or that I'll make more money if I take this job or this is a big promotion. And to make the decision solely on economics, solely on how it's going to impact your bank account or your career and give no consideration to how it will impact your relationship with God or how it will impact your family spiritually. Always a bad idea. Your number one Question and concern when making a decision for your life should be, how will this impact me spiritually if I take this job, if I move there? Don't just assume that there's good churches there. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard that from people. Hey, I got this job, we're going to be moving, got a big promotion, real excited about it, and I'll say, did you guys check out any churches there? Oh yeah, there's a lot of churches there. Or I hear this. Yeah, there's Calvary Chapels there. Okay, would you check them out? Did you go visit one? Did you stay over a couple Sundays to see if it's a good fit for you? Are they really teaching the Word there? Is it a good fit for your family? Is it a good fit for your kids? Don't just assume that it's going to work out. That the spiritual side's going to work out when you get there. I can't tell you the number of people that have moved away and they moved away to a wilderness and they couldn't find a church. And they just kind of wandered in the wilderness. But they've got the job. They're making great money. That was Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. They say, hey, you know what? This, we raise cattle. This is great land for cattle. This, we're going to just stay here. We don't want to go into what God has for us. We're just going to settle here. Lot, in the book of Genesis, is another example of someone who just made his decision solely based on the economics. He chose the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, because he was a shepherd. And when he lifted his eyes and he looked across the Jordan Valley in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, it says of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was like a well-watered garden. It was like the gardens of the Lord. It was like the gardens of Egypt, it says. It was a wonderful land for raising sheep. Horrible place to raise a family. Morally, spiritually. And you look at the story of Lot. And he raised two daughters who had the morals of Sodom and Gomorrah. But he prospered there. He became a leader in that community. He was one of the judges of that city. Things went well for his career, but things were a disaster for his family. His wife, right? She didn't want to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. She longed to stay there. His daughters married two guys that that scoffed at God. Right? these two ungodly men. And his daughters left with the morals of Sodom and Gomorrah. Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, they settled on the eastern side of the Jordan River, outside the promised land. And guess what? When the Assyrians came, they were the first ones conquered. And they were the first ones carried away into captivity before all the other tribes of Israel. And and what this is talking about here in chapter 49, after they were carried away, after Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh were carried away, the Ammonites moved into their territory. That's what verse 1 is referring to. It says, you know, why does Milcom inherit Gad? Has Israel no sons? Has he no heirs? Why then does Milcom inherit Gad? Milcom was the Ammonite god. It was Molech. Why does Molech take the land that belongs to the people of God? Are there no descendants of Israel to to maintain control of it, to occupy it? And the answer is no, they've all been carried away captive. And Ammon was able to just move right in and take over that land. Therefore, verse 2, look what the Lord says here. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will cause to be heard an alarm of war in Rabbah which was the capital of the Ammonites. It's modern-day Ammon, Ammon, Jordan. It shall be a desolate mound, their capital city. Try to put yourself into the context of the passage and to have someone say that our capital city will be a desolate mound. That's what the Lord says here about the capital of the Ammonites. And her villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall take possession Of his inheritance, says the Lord. Because the Ammonites had taken territory, the Lord had given to his people. Now the Lord says he's going to destroy their capital city. He's going to burn all of their cities so that Israel can repossess their inheritance. In other words, he's going to take the land back for them. Wait, O Heshbon. For Ai is plundered. Now, this is not Ai that the Israelites conquered under Joshua. This is a Ai that was in the land of Ammon. It's plundered. Cry, you daughters of Rabbah. Gird yourselves with sackcloth. Lament and run to and fro by the walls. For Milcom shall go into captivity. Again, that's their God. With his priests and his princes together. Your God's going to fail you. (laughs) They're going to mourn over their towns and lament over the destruction over their towns. Their God, Milcom, will fail them. Their God will go into captivity into Babylon along with the priests of Milcom and the leaders, the princes of the nation. Behold, I will bring fear upon you, says the Lord God of hosts, from all those who are around you. I'm going to bring fear from every direction. You shall be driven out, every one headlong, and no one will gather those who wander off. But afterward, I will bring back the captives of the people of Ammon, says the Lord. Ammon's sin was pride. Ammon's sin was pride and self-confidence. I think I skipped verse 4. Why do you boast in the valleys, your flowing valley? O backsliding daughter who trusted in her treasures saying who will come against me. They trusted in their geography to protect them. The fact that their cities were in valleys with high, steep mountains surrounding them. They thought no one could ever attack us. Our geography protects us. Our geography isolates us and keeps us from being attacked from another nation. There was a time in our country, in the United States, where we were confident in our geography because we had the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, and we thought there's no way we could ever have an attack on the mainland United States, right? Until 9/11. But up to then, we were confident in our geography that that protected us. That's how it was for them, for Ammon. They were confident in their geography that that would protect them, that that would keep them safe, and they were confident in their riches, their treasures, their wealth. You see that in verse 4, who trusted in her treasures, saying, who will come against me? We've got these mountains protecting us, we've got riches, no one can come against us.
0: You're listening to Ring of Truth
1: you can email me through our website at calvaryec.com. That's calvaryec.com.
0: Thanks, Pastor Dan. Now let's join him again for the conclusion of today's edition of Ring of Truth.
1: But he says again in verse 5 that all those around you are going to come against you. In other words, you're going to be attacked from every direction. From every direction. And you're going to be chased out of your own land. But God promised to bring them back. You see that in verse 6, but afterward, I will bring back the captives of the people of Ammon, says the Lord. And the next we have Edom, verse 7, the Edomites, Edom. The Edomites were the descendants, as I said earlier, of Esau, Jacob's twin brother. And the conflict between Israel, (laughs) the Edomites, goes all the way back to when Jacob and Esau were in the womb. Before they were even born, they were, remember they're wrestling in the womb. Before they're even born into the world, they were fighting. So these two nations, even though they're cousins in a sense, even though they're related, they've had a long, long history of conflict between the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau. That began back in Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob and Esau. You come to the New Testament, Herod the Great is from Edomia. He's an Edomian. He's from Edom. Herod the Great is a descendant of Esau. And it's Herod the Great who tries to kill the baby Jesus, a descendant of Jacob. So that conflict carried on into the New Testament times and it was still playing out in Jesus' story. Verse 7, against Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Teman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Teman was a town in Edom. It was in Edom. If you remember in the book of Job, one of Job's friends who came to comfort and console Job was Eliphaz, the Temanite. He was from Teman. Teman was famous for its wisdom, for the wisdom of its inhabitants. It was like the Harvard or the Yale of Edom. But its wisdom is no more. The people of Edom have not behaved wisely. Counsel has perished. Wisdom has vanished. Jesus tells us in Luke's Gospel, when he's talking about the end times in the world, that there will be great perplexity upon the earth. And what that means is that there will be problems that the world is facing that are just too complicated for man to figure out. You look at what's going on in the world today, and we can't figure out anything with the problems we're facing today. And there are really, really, really smart people working on it. You know, Ivy League graduate people, the great minds and intellectuals of our culture. And they don't even know where to start with this stuff. It's just like in Edom wisdom has vanished, counsel has perished. That's a sign of the times for Edom. They were about to face judgment, and God removed their wisdom, God removed their counsel. It's a sign of the last days of that nation. It's going to be a sign of the last days of this world. Even in Israel, as we saw back in the book of Isaiah, as they were approaching judgment, what does it say? That God gave them children to run their nation. People who were not qualified to run their nation. That was a sign of God's judgment against that nation. And you can draw your own conclusions about that and the days that we live in. Counsel has perished. Wisdom has vanished. Flee. Look at verse 8. Flee. Turn back. Dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan. The people of Edom needed to flee, run for their lives because God would bring calamity on the nation. And he tells the people of Dedan specifically to flee. This is a play here on the geography of Edom. Dedan was way down in the southern portion of Edom. And the city of Dedan, it sat right on the edge of the Arabian desert. It was like the last outpost before you went out into the desolation of the Arabian desert. When I was a kid, my dad worked in a place in Alaska. He worked for the Department of Defense. And he worked on this little island in the Aleutian Islands. And it was the last of the islands in the Aleutian Islands. It was the closest island to the former Soviet Union at that time. And they used to have a saying on all like, the coffee mugs and everything that he would bring back from that island. It's not the end of the world, but you can see it from here. That's d Dam. Dedan sits right on the edge of the Arabian desert. It's the last stop. You can't go any further than Dedan. But look what he says to the people of Dedan. You need to run. You need to flee. (laughs) The people of Dedan can't flee. There's nowhere else to go. They're the last stop. There's nowhere to run to. Except out into the desert where you're not going to survive. The point here is no one in Edom will escape judgment there's nowhere to escape to there's nowhere to get out of it there's nowhere to go if grape gatherers came to you would they not leave some gleaning grapes they wouldn't harvest all the grapes of course if thieves by night came would they not destroy until they have enough again grape pickers grape gatherers They don't pick every grape in the vineyard. They don't strip it clean. Thieves normally don't clean out a house of everything. They leave most of it behind. Look at verse 10. But I have made Esau bare. I have uncovered his secret places, and he shall not be able to hide himself. His descendants are plundered, his brethren and his neighbors... And he is no more. Here God says he's going to plunder everything from Esau. He's going to strip it bare. Leave your fatherless children. I will preserve them alive and let your widows trust in me. You see the mercy of God here. Even in the midst of judgment, he's showing mercy. He promises to take care of the fatherless, the orphans, and the widows, even as he is bringing devastation upon the nation. For thus says the Lord, behold, those whose judgment was not to drink of the cup have assuredly drunk. And are you the one who will altogether go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you shall surely drink of it. For I have sworn by myself, says the Lord, that Basra shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse and all its cities shall be perpetual wastes. God swears here by himself. I have sworn by myself. There's no one higher that he can swear by than, he, than himself. But by swearing by himself. Now his name's on the line. His reputation's on the line. If he doesn't bring this judgment to pass against Esau or Edom. I have heard a message from the Lord, verse 14 and an ambassador has been sent to the nations. Gather together, come against her, and rise up to battle. God's going to call the other nations to come to fight against them. For indeed, I will make you small among nations, despised among men. For your fierceness has deceived you. The pride of your heart.
2: He asked me how I know. And I say, bring sure.
0: The book of Jeremiah entails many prophecies given to the people of Israel, but they weren't just commands of judgment and consequence. Within these pages, Jeremiah gives insight into the coming promises that Jesus would offer by coming and fulfilling a new covenant of redemption for all people. What's interesting is that Jeremiah poured his heart and soul out as he wrote this book. It wasn't just a dry dissertation of what people should do or what should come about. Jeremiah was a living and breathing person during the time of siege and exile, and he felt deeply for the people and nation he was a part of. His empathy for his kinsmen should resonate with you as you're part of a larger group of people in a nation and ultimately part of God's family. Is there a stirring within you to see those who are lost come to have a saving knowledge of Christ? If so, you might be able to relate to Jeremiah more than you thought. If you're enjoying this series through the book of Jeremiah and would like to hear more teachings, we encourage you to visit our website at calvaryec.com. In addition to listening to these teachings, you can access more information about the church behind this ministry, Calvary Chapel, Ellicott City. As a church, our heart is geared towards spreading the gospel message to all we come in contact with. And we welcome anyone to worship with us at our location in Columbia, Maryland. For service times and location, check out calvaryec.com. Thanks for joining us today. Next time, we'll continue looking at the book of Jeremiah, here on Ring of Truth.
2: I see the signs and I recognize the hands that